like my peace and quiet. Um, the interpreter's house is where we are. If you guys are joining us in the study, <clears throat> and we are at a, a critically important juncture there for which we're going to kind of grind at it a little bit tonight in terms of um, the significance of theological genre as a methodology by which Christ um, winnowed out, separated the wheat from the chaff, uh, and distinguished the privileged from the people that were just peripherally interested in him. <clears throat> and that genre is allegory and metaphor, typology, pictures. I'm going to talk about that a bit tonight as we are going to probably just work through our opening point. What is the role of the interpreter? That's what we want to deal with. And, uh, we might get to point number two, the first and primary vision of the interpreter, but we will definitely unpack this more tomorrow night in our Wednesday Zoom class. So if you have the Zoom information, be ready to go into points two and three with me. You can turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read some selected verses there. Then I'm going to, um, but I'm going to open first in prayer, but you can just be there. <clears throat> and then I'll just nurture some thoughts around uh, this unique method of revelation, which we're going to distinguish as illumination uh, in, in terms of its uh, category and in terms of its uh, aim and objective for, like I stated, separating the sheep from the goats or separating the, the called from the non-called or separating the chosen from the merely externally called. We'll talk about all that here in a moment. So let me open in a word of prayer. Lord, we're asking that you give us ears to hear. Um, help us to become unfamiliar with our present situation so as to not fall prey to diminished hearing because of our comforts. Uh, if we have not been able to sufficiently rest, Lord, forgive us for not doing so when we could have so that we can give you undivided attention. You are worthy of it, and particularly the subject matters in front of us do require some energy of mind to be able to grasp the uh, importance of uh, the interpreter's house. So we're asking uh, for your mercy and your kindness to us, to our audience and those that will be listening and watching and studying along with us as well. And of course, Father, we're coming to you for cleansing, which will help our minds and our hearts and our ways and our life through the blood atoning work of Christ, the hyssop of your grace upon our uh, conscious in our heart and our mind, um, which is the blood of your son laid out for your people for sanctification. We are coming to you also on the grounds of his righteousness, which is our standing immutable, irrevocable, unchangeable, irreversible Christ in us. We in Christ and you in us, Father, by your spirit, uh, we have access to you. So help us now, Lord, open our eyes, increase the interest Increase the interest of our minds so that these are not merely bodily exercises, but that we understand the nature of the kingdom of God and, uh, and those saving revelations essential to us, making our calling and election sure. We're asking this with your mercy on our families, our children, our loved ones, the people we care about and adore that they also might be brought into this state of salvation. This we pray in Jesus name. Amen. I'm in Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read about four verses, starting at verse 10 and 11, then 12, then 16 and 17. I'm going to make some observations to kind of help guide us into the interpretation of the interpreter's house at the framework level. <clears throat> Matthew 13, verse 10, and the disciple, the disciples came and said unto him, that is to Jesus, why are you speaking unto them in parables? And he answered unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and to him uh, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever has not from him shall be taken away, even that which he has. Drop down to verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see 
those things which you are seeing and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Thus is the reading of God's word. So now the reason why I'm sharing that verse with you is because this is the, the language, this is the context, the framework for the interpreter's house as I see it in Bunyan's writing. This is the framework for the interpreter's house as I see it in Bunyan's writing. And so we want to elicit from this portion of scripture uh, some, some fundamentals. Jesus did speak to the whole community in parables a lot. He did explain here that the parables that he shared were designed to create a distinction between people groups. He just said that. The disciples were interested in why that was being done. Why are you doing that? Why are you speaking to them in parables? Now, they're part of the auditory context. They're just listening to Christ. They're following him. He's preaching. And if you read the Gospels carefully, he gives a lot of parables. Uh, parables are a genre. They are a modality of language, a mode of communication, which the term parable simply means object lessons, rhetorical lessons, visual aids alongside of some theological proposition. So when we use the term parable, it means to throw or cast something alongside of the message that you're giving. Okay, that's what a parable is. It's the idea of saying, in addition to this proposition, here's a story to kind of illustrate what I'm saying. That's what the idea of parables are. So um, Jesus did that with a purpose. It also had a historic fulfillment. All right, good. It also had a historic fulfillment in that what's taking place in Matthew 13 is given to us in Psalm 78, verse 1 and 2. You can pull that up as well. I need the volume down a bit more. Psalm 78, 1 and 2. I'm going to talk about this a little bit, but hear what it says. This is Psalm 78, 1 and 2. First of all, the imperative is to do what? Give ear. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Giving ear is a call to obedience the first principle of obedience is always hearing, okay? Give ear, and then he describes those to whom the imperative is given, O my people. Give ear, O my people. In contradistinction to give ear, everybody. And this again would underscore what John meant in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. So give ear, O my people, to my law. And this since Mishpat would be the totality of scripture, okay? So you don't have to make a distinction here in terms of categories, whether it's law or grace or gospel. Law meaning God's word, okay? Uh, give ear to my law, incline your ears. Now this idea here of incline your ears means lean into it. And the term we've used in the past is the word P-A-T-H. It's acrostic for pay attention to what? Him. P-A-T-H. That is the path of the believer. The believer walks by faith, which comes by hearing. Incline, incline your ears to the words of what? My mouth. So, right, that is a uh, chock full of uh, the idea that Christ is going to be speaking and the audience that he is intending should give profound uh, interest in what he has to say. And then we read in verse 2 these words. I will open my mouth in a what? Right. So I'll just for the time's sake, I want you to capture that the proposition is exposing to us Christ's methodology. He said, I will open my mouth in a parable. That is methodological. I will open my mouth in a parable. And, and what he means there is I will make things plain in the context of something that by nature is not plain. It's important for you to get that. All right, so a parable is a complex propositional structure that has inherent in it some kind of revelatory idea, some kind of revelation. So he's saying here, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. That second line, again, brings us into the paradox of metaphor and analogy and typology and similes and patterns. You can't avoid it. It has to be addressed. So understand what Christ is saying here. 
he's saying, and this is, this is actually the pointer passage for Matthew 13. The next time it comes up is in Isaiah 6, which Christ also quotes, saying they have ears, but they do not hear. They have eyes, but they do not see. Because if they did have ears and eyes, they would hear what I am saying and they would be saved. So the way the language is being framed here is to let you and I know that to grasp, to grasp the parable is to be privileged. To grasp the parable is to be privileged. It is expected that not everyone will grasp the parable. That's what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 13. It is not given for them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, it is given to you. Now, all that being said, you've heard that before. I want to give you a gracious warning to really take the idea of the kingdom of God seriously. Because what you, what you and I are engaged in here at the uh, point of Pilgrim's Journey in the area of the interpreter's house is we're given seven revelatory parables are seven revelatory uh, metaphors, seven revelatory similes. They are seven in number because that's how, you know, scripture works for us. Seven revelatory metaphors or analogies that describes the kingdom of Christ. Seven revelatory analogies of which the first one we will deal with today, tomorrow, and Friday and I, I would argue that the first one is like the primacy of the seven. You've got to get this first one right in order for the other ones to make sense. And we'll see if we can tie that knot. Uh, the emphasis that I'm making right now is that what is this business of the interpreter's house? The interpreter's house for us is the way in which Jesus introduced the matters of the kingdom of God amongst the masses with the objective of making a distinction, a categorical distinction between those that were called to understand and those that were not. And so what you and I get to do is walk through these passages and these analogies to see whether or not we have ears to hear and can understand them and understand their uh, imperative importance to you and me today. So uh, having said that, let me kind of uh, run into our first point. What I enjoyed about Goodwill, we talked about him last week, uh, was the idea that Goodwill was the one at the straight gate. You guys remember that if you are keeping up with me. And Goodwill is the one that was joyfully and eagerly and urgently and happily willing to open the door to Christian to let Christian into the straight gate. You guys remember that. And, and I said that that was such a, a beautiful and uh, uh, an attractive quality in goodwill for me that it's something you don't want to ignore as part of the overall lesson, the overall didactic of the book of uh, the Pilgrim's Progress. All these characters are showing up, right? And who is goodwill for you and I? Goodwill is the individual who has such a love for the things of God and such a love for the kingdom of God that he is privileged to actually supervise and attend access to the straight and narrow path. He has such, and I, when I say he has such a love, such an enthusiasm, and such a commitment to Christ, I am saying that there is something that has been developed in him that has granted him the privilege of being a doorkeeper of the kingdom of God. Not everyone is, but he was. And it could, it could be seen in the exuberance he had, in the, in the, in the gracious way in which he engaged Christian. The, the notes that I have around that are that goodwill was affirming. The first thing he was was affirming. If you're going to take some notes, goodwill was affirming. Secondly, he was assuring. If you're going to take another note, affirming, assuring. And then thirdly, he was encouraging. Okay, it's important for us to understand that Pilgrim shows up at the interpreter's house, which is a huge accomplishment because of our dear brother, who? Goodwill. Right, goodwill. And this here really simply is an attribute of God in terms of John 6, 37. Again, all that the Father giveth me, Jesus says, shall come unto me. 
All right. And he that comes unto me, I will in no way cast out. So the disposition of the one coming is a work of God drawing them as we've already learned, right? You can't come unless the father draws. So if you're being drawn to God and you reach that level of access to the straight gate, you can be sure that the straight gate is not going to be difficult in it opening. All you have to know is that if you knock sincerely, remember he had to knock. And as we learned in Jeremiah chapter 23, 19, if you seek me, you shall find me when you seek me with all your heart. Goodwill is very much aware that the pilgrim has went through all kinds of struggle to get to that door. And no way is goodwill after knowing that pilgrim has just left family and home and friends and has endured slews of despond and serious soul-damning distractions on the part of the worldly wise man. And, 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 and in addition to that, firm admonition and rebuke on the part of who? Evangelists. That pilgrim is a tender soul at the gate of access to Christ for which no believer should ever take advantage of that kind of psychological and spiritual timidity or preparatory disposition. Did that make some sense? Right. In other words, the believer must understand when you can properly discern and capture, if God grants you, the right attitude and the right disposition, the right frame of mind of a seeker who is being drawn when that person demonstrates that level of humility and that level of honesty, remember what the pilgrim did. He opened wide up to goodwill. He answered goodwill's every question. And then he added to what goodwill said in terms of, I don't deserve to be here. I have no right to be here. And goodwill knows that that is a work of grace in preparation for the soul to enter into the difficult but necessary process of ending up at Calvary. We know what we learned a couple of weeks ago in our opening study in the Gospel of John chapter 12, verse 32. If I be lifted up, I will do what? Draw all men unto me. So if one can discern, if one can really discern that a person is actually being drawn of God, that's not always the case that you can discern that, but to the degree that you can pick up on those kind of workings, and I would call that a mature believer, quite frankly. I would call the mature believer the believer that is capable of recognizing where people are in their spiritual journey as God would give them insight. Be very careful about presumption here. I don't want you to think that you're some kind of mystic that can read people's spiritual temperature. Because people get into that foolishness. And it's sadly unhelpful when you think you can see something that's not there. Am I making some sense? But but really, if you have enough experience to be able to see how God works and God has worked in you somewhat of the same things and you meet a humble sojourner, a humble uh, pursuer of the kingdom of God, what a precious opportunity that's laid before you. You should be a person of goodwill. What that means is you should be affirming of everything that that person says that corresponds with the kingdom's journey. You should be assuring of that individual in the areas in which they might um, begin to trust you and open up about their fears, open, about, uh, open up about their misconceptions. Certainly that's what Pilgrim did. That's what he did. And, and uh, Goodwill was there to let him know, listen, the king receives any and all. It does not matter where you came from, what you went through. The king's, his purpose for this path is to receive you into his kingdom. Great words, aren't they? Uh, and it was necessary for uh, goodwill to exercise that kind of affirmative, assuring, uh, um, reciprocal dialogue with, with Pilgrim because it was reciprocal. Goodwill wasn't doing all the talking. He was listening to the narrative of Pilgrim. And then he affirmed him. And then he, he clarified, yes, uh, evangelist was telling you right because worldly wise man has been one who has slain thousands 
thousands have missed this door by worldly wise men. And so when you hear that and you realize you're at the door, God was good to you. And, and to have goodwill encouraging you along the way. And then as you and I know, goodwill set him on his course well. A little bit up the road. Isn't that a word of encouragement? A little bit, not way up the road, a little bit up the road. You're going to run into interpreter's house. He's going to show you what you need to know. Is that a good word? Right. And there was a final statement. I made this, made this observation um, in the outline I sent you. It may still be here. What was Goodwill's last words to Pilgrim concerning his burden? Remember what Pilgrim said as he's about to close out dialogue with Goodwill? He says, but sir, can you tell me how to get this burden off my back? Do you guys remember that? All right. More than that, but that was important. And I want to frame it. Not just be content. And you should learn those words. You must be content with that burden on your back until you come to the place where it will fall off of its own accord. Did you get that? Right. So we're dealing with parable. We're dealing with analogies. We're dealing with metaphors. We're dealing with Goodwill explaining to Pilgrim that the way the burden is going to come off of your back is not by something you do. Not by some ascetic labor you engage in, some task you partake of, some community that you enter into, like the city of morality and hang out with Mr. Legality and then kick it with his son, civility. No, your burden is going to fall off at the right time, in the right place, as the Lord wills it. Did that make some sense? It's very important because you know what he did when he did that for him? He told him, your biggest burden is not the burden falling off of your back. Your biggest challenge is not getting rid of your burden. Your biggest challenge is finding him who can. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. I told you this last week. This is where we're going to get ready to go into our text a little bit. Um, a person can make their sin bigger than Jesus. A person can make their sin bigger than Jesus. A person can make their troubles bigger than Jesus. You can meet people who they'll talk to you for two minutes about Jesus and 22 minutes about their trials. A person can make their struggles more potent than the grace of God in Christ. A person shaping their own story, because we all have our stories, don't we? Can make the center of their story all the hell they're going through than all the grace they've received from Jesus. A person can focus more on their past transgressions than their present hope in the one who can put away their transgressions. So what I'm getting at here as we get ready to go into this stage of our study is to help you and I understand how diabolical our hearts are around realities that have a tendency to usurp the priority of the goal of the believer in their walk with God and therefore default you to miss the blessing of the hierarchical aim, right? Your sin is never more important than your savior. Your struggle is never more important than his triumph for your sins. And I am not saying that those things are to be ignored. Neither did goodwill. Goodwill did not say ignore those things. He said, don't exalt those things above the priority of finding him of whom evangelists said he can solve all your problems. See what I'm getting at? You see how important that is, ladies and gentlemen? So this will put you and I back on a track of why uh, theology is important and a radical 
Christocentric theology at that, because you and I can dissipate by struggles into kind of uh, avenues and categories of theological investigation, theological analysis, theological emphasis that fail to actually make sure that Christ is at the pinnacle of all of our pursuit, of all of our understanding, of all of our uh, experiences. And this is what I love about Goodwill. He knows what Pilgrim needs better than Pilgrim does. And so he says it, don't worry about that burden on your back. You just continue pursuing the course that evangelist gave you. And the course obviously was to bring Pilgrim to the interpreter's house. Does that make some sense? Right, okay, so now here's where I wanna work. I wanna see if I can get two points down, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Under point number one, what is the role of the interpreter? Let me work this out with you, okay? Let me work this out with you. What is the role of the interpreter? I didn't say his house. His house is constituent with who he is, but his role is critical to this analysis. So if we are, if we are engaging in a walking narrative, in a, in a parabolic unfolding, a, an allegory, the person that evangelist wants pilgrim to know essential to pilgrim getting to the cross is another mediator like unto evangelists. That mediator is the interpreter. That's who he is. What is his role uh, as an interpreter? His role as an, an interpreter is to bring the pilgrim, remember the pilgrim's progress, into a space where they can grasp mysteries of the kingdom of God where they can be made aware of uh, kingdom realities that are only understood in metaphor and typology and patterns which map onto real life scenarios, which I would say is the work of illumination necessary to give you discernment as to what is the good and bad and struggle and straightness of the path that you're on. It's important. In the same way you heard Jesus say in Matthew chapter 13, blessed are your eyes because they what? See. And blessed are your ears because they what? It, it, it inferred, didn't it, that they understood the parable or that they were positioned to understand the parable. Because you guys remember, Jesus gave the first parable, which was the beginning of a whole litany of parables, and it was the parable of what? The sower and the seed. Do you guys remember that? And Jesus said, these are called the mysteries of the what? The kingdom. You're going to see that in your outline. These are mysteries of the kingdom. Mystery, meaning hidden things. Mysteries, plural, of the kingdom. How the kingdom of God works. And did we not uh, hear our master say in John chapter 3, verse 5 through 8 last week, except you um, be born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Right? So constituent with seeing the kingdom of God is the idea of being born again. A renewing that takes place in the inner man at which in three categories, God does something for you and me that we, he, we can't do for ourselves. We have to be born a second time. We have to be born in a different way and we have to be born from above. You guys remember those three categories, which means we're not being born of a physical nature. It is a spiritual birth it is a new birth and it is a heavenly birth. So you are becoming a new creature. And if you are becoming a new creature, guess what? You have new ears and you have new eyes. All right. Um, and so this is the idea of entrance in the kingdom, into the kingdom of God is a radical event of a transformative nature that qualifies you now to experience the nature of the kingdom of God as a child of the kingdom. Okay, and so this is where um, Goodwill is extremely happy that he's letting uh, Pilgrim, the Pilgrim, into the pathway that's leading up to um, to the interpreter's house. And the role of the interpreter, as we see in subpoint A of point number one, the role of the interpreter is to show Christian what both Goodwill and the interpreter said he would do. The role of the interpreter is to show Christian, I want you to hear this, I want you to write it down because we're going to unpack it, excellent things. 
excellent things. The role of the interpreter is to show Christian excellent things. Excellent things. Now, when he uses that term excellent things, what he is saying is that the purpose of the interpreter is to bring Christian into a knowledge of things superlative, things transcendent, things that surpass mere human experience. All of these are legitimate extractions from the Greek term hupereko, from which we get the term excellent. Think with me for a moment about the idea of excellent, okay? When we think about excellence, we are thinking about something that is fundamentally flawless in its aim. Would you agree with that? If we go, that was what? Excellent. Then we're giving a qualitative assessment of it that we feel is adequate to that thing experienced. The food was excellent. That garment was excellent. That event was excellent, right? And it's the term that is used both in the Old Testament for the nature and character of the word of God. The word of God is viewed as excellent. The truth of God is called the surpassing knowledge. It's the idea of truth having a level of authorial dignity, authorial dignity, which is terms that were used in the monarchical period. And you shouldn't be surprised our King James Bible is embedded in a monarchical period, is it not? The King James Bible, that's still a monarchical time. So as an English word, the idea, and this would be true in Jesus' day, they were monarchies. Everything in your Bible is monarchical in nature. So when we talk about excellent things, I want you to think about this. The excellent things that interpreter is going to show Pilgrim are the excellent things of the king. The excellent things of the king. The king has a word. The king has a revelation. The king has a system. He has a function. He has a protocol. The king has a government. The king has a process. And what you and I want to know are the excellent things of the king. Did that come home? Very important. Very important. Let me give you some Bible verses. I don't want to move too quickly, even though the clock is moving quickly, because one of the errors we make. I said I wasn't going to do it, but so I'll create this, this small refutational uh, contrast. And it's important to do refutation as you're working through propositions that you're affirming. It's important for us to hold God's word at the highest level that we possibly can as human beings because of its own intrinsic excellency. Right. But you and I can bring God's word down to a common thing and become even in our own minds and by our attitude and behavior, not excellent at all. And so to the degree that you and I are not viewing God's word as excellent, it will not benefit us in terms of the excellency of its capacity to raise us to a level of dignity as sons and daughters of God for what excellent words are designed to do. Excellent words are designed to give you wisdom. That's what they are designed to do. Uh, that's what they're designed to do. So this, this is where he's coming from. Listen to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 6 through 9. And of course, Proverbs 8, for those of you who have been tracking with me for years, is the first set of categories of three major branches in the book of Proverbs. Father, son, father, son, and then king, servant, and then husband and wife. Chapter 30 and 31, husband and wife. Right. Before that king servant paradigm, first uh, 17, 16 chapters are what? Father, son, my son, take heed to my commandment. Listen to your mother's instruction. So it's parents to a child. Right. As are we. And notice what he says here. For I will speak of what? There it is. Proverbs 8, 6. That's exactly what goodwill say you are going to get when interpreter takes you in and show you excellent things explicitly. Is it not Proverbs chapter eight, verse six? So for some of you, you know what I'm doing with you right now? I'm showing you the excellency of what we call the perspicuity of scripture. Perspicuity simply means the scriptures speak clearly of themselves. 
meaning I'm not developing a text of scripture. I'm simply expressing a proposition that says exactly the same thing. Does it not? Look at that proposition. Proverbs 8 verse 1 tells us that the person that's speaking is wisdom. We would agree with that, would we not? Uh, the whole world needs wisdom. I need wisdom, the capacity to discern, to uh, distinguish, to critique, to analyze, to make right judgments, right? We need that wisdom. And here it says, does not what? Wisdom cry out and understanding put forth her voice. So these are languages that describe the person of Jesus in terms of the qualitative nature of his counsel towards us. Go back to verse six. I'm just making a loop. I'm going to share with you one more verse and then we'll go on here for I will speak of what? Good. And remember, isn't that what Psalm 78 said to give ear, O my people, right? For I will open my mouth and parables and utter, make known, explain dark sayings. Here's what he's saying. Here, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be what? Yeah. That's the kind of person you want to listen to. The person you want to listen to speaks excellent things and right things. It's the role of the interpreter. So I, I, that's where I want you to understand that's the role of the interpreter. Here's how Paul puts it, and I love this as well. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. We're going to look at Philippians 3, 8. Notice how Paul uses this term. This, again, is in the Greek, hupereko. The one we're looking at is an older Hebrew phrasing that I'd love to develop as well. Literally in the Hebrew here, this idea of excellent things is what I stated early by inference. Princely things. Things for which you hear princes speak. Okay. And the Oriental culture, Middle Eastern Oriental culture, it was uncommonly, unseemly for dignitaries, children of kings and queens, to be stupid. It was, it was inappropriate to be raised up under the richest and wealth and prominence of dignitaries and not have the best education. It was not appropriate for the king's children to act like paupers. Are you keeping up with me? And neither is it for the children of God. It is not appropriate for the children of God to be ignorant of the excellent things of God. See what I'm getting at now? Right. And this is why you can see when Jesus says I'm giving it to them in parables, because I know this group of people, they don't love God and they don't love me. The parable is going to shut them out. And the reason the parable will open up to the disciples is because God will give them a heart to knock on the door. Would you let us in? Would you explain these things to us? Of course, that's why Christ called them near to him to explain the kingdom to them. And they got it by the time we get to Acts chapter two, didn't they? Paul says, Jay, doubtless, I count all things lost for the what? Of the what? Of the what? That whole, that whole clause there is absolutely exquisite. What I love about what Paul is doing, he's taking the string of propositional truths from the Old Testament in Torah, in Mishpat, around wisdom, and summing them up in the person of Jesus. You know what he's saying? Excellent things are a knowledge of Christ. That's what he's saying. Look at it. I count everything necessarily lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dong that I may what? You, you, right now, the echoing coming through Paul's um, character and attitude around these words is of the Proverbs chapter two and three. When wisdom is pleasant to your soul and knowledge is sweet to your taste, then you will search for her as rubies. You will desire her as precious stones. And the searching of rubies and precious stones is the arduous work of breaking through the follow of hard rocks because the treasure is on the inside of the hard rocks. And the hard rock becomes for us the allegory that we got to break through to find the gems of redemptive reality, which are the excellent things of Christ. Am I making some sense? Now, right there, guess what happens? There's a division between the lazy and the diligent. 
You mean in order to get excellent things, I have to work? This is the reason why um, Oster went back right away. And it's the reason why Pliable didn't make it. Because the words of evangelist didn't sound like the excellent things that Pilgrim heard. Pilgrim continues because he knows there are excellent things out in front of us. Does that make sense? And, and as he struggled in his journey, I do not want you to, don't distort his struggle. Treasure Pilgrim's struggle. Because every time he struggled, he struggled forward. He struggled forward. He's, he never struggled backwards. He thought about going backwards, but before he could even cultivate that thought, evangelist was up on him. And again, that's God drawing, is it not? That's God drawing us. That's called the preservation of the saints. That's called the perseverance of the believer, is it not? Right, good, good. I have to do this because if I don't, um, I don't think we can fully appreciate the office that we're getting ready to deal with in terms of our, our, our dear brother, the interpreter. So Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, 8, these words, please go back. Uh, I have suffered the loss of everything that I may win. See that little word win? It's called gain in the Greek. Literally, it means to obtain. And the obtaining was the consequence of Paul viewing the excellent things of the knowledge of Christ more important than everything in the world. So we're going to be circling back to him. When we ask the question, who is that dude in the picture in the first vision? Am I making some sense? All right, let me, let me keep working now. Let's go back to our first point. We got a little ways to go. We can get this. Under point number one, what is the role of the interpreter? John 16, 13 will give us a composite of it. I'll express it. I don't want to lock it down, but I'm going to tell you, this is what Jesus is going to tell you and me. This is what he's going to tell you and me. Jesus is going to tell you and me, if we are legitimately in pursuit of him, we are going to have to be attached at the psychological, at the spiritual, at the intellectual, at the emotional hip of one called the paraclete. This is John 16, verse 13. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will do what? Guide you into all truth. Is that what interpreter is about to do? Take him through seven comprehensive mystery visions that's going to help Pilgrim understand what's in front of him. Does that make sense? When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. <clears throat> For he shall not speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. <clears throat> One more verse, verse 14. He shall glorify who? He shall glorify who? Who's the one talking in this text? Christ. Christ. Christ is saying the third person is coming and his job is to show you the things of the second person of whom I am. And he will make them known in such a way. He will make them known in such a way as that they will glorify me. Right. So this is also what we mean by things becoming excellent. Because the glorification is twofold. It is the right and proper sufficient exposition of the person of Christ. But it's also the impact of that person on the heart of the person that's learning about him. That brings glory in the heart of the person that sees Jesus. Like to some of us, Jesus is glorious. Okay. Like for some of us, Jesus is glory. And, and this one here is really worthy of your consideration. Okay, so I may know about Jesus. Is he glorious? Because if he's not glorious, there is something wrong with my perception. There's something wrong with my motive for apprehending him. And or there's something wrong with the instrumental means or there's something wrong with the essential means. Something is wrong if my knowledge of Christ is not a knowledge of him who is altogether glorious. See what I'm getting at? All right. And, and, and this idea of the glory of Christ is critical to your advancement. 
It's critical to your advancement. So uh, the goal of the interpreter is to glorify Christ as king of a kingdom with these different analogies and metaphors, with these different events transpiring that is going to be extremely. In other words, Pilgrim, when he leaves the interpreter's house, he's going to be clear on what is going down in the kingdom. Does that make sense? He's a picture of the disciples who walk with Jesus for three and a half years. And when Jesus drops them off, you know, at, at Jerusalem, they're ready for the journey. And remember, as they enter into their journey, all they're doing is saying, as Jesus told us, as Jesus told us, right? Now they're ready for the journey because they, they, as it were, went through the interpreter's house with Jesus as he laid out the parables for them. Are you guys keeping up with me? It's important for you to get that. All right, so under point number one, what is the role of the interpreter? His role is to take the excellent things of Christ and show them to us. That's sub point A, to show Christian excellent things. Sub point B, here it is, to unfold, and this is what we just learned in Matthew 13, 11, 16, and 17, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So there are going to be two words here that I want you to capture if you are just getting these terms unfold, to unfold, to show, to reveal, to explain, to uncover, to uncover. This is our word, apoc. Apocalypses, from which we get the term apocalypse. And I'm seeing if I can help you with this because this is going to be tied to the second, uh, the final category, sub point C. So the goal of the interpreter is to show Christian, to show the pilgrim excellent things concerning our master, surpassing excellencies, realities of the kingdom of God, authoritatively uh, quality rendering of reports with evidences of superior testimonies of the kingdom of God. That, that's, these are all superlatives I'm using to describe once again a, a decree or a petition of an ambassador representing a king who hands you that decree or that petition or that notice and you open it up and the king is speaking to you. Did that make some sense? So when the ambassador gives you that scroll, you open that scroll and it has the insignia on the key of the king on it. You read everything that's on that scroll because your life depends upon it. It's excellent in that it's coming from the highest authority in the land. And so it would be for us with the word of God, would it not be? And with King Jesus. Okay, so this is extremely important to show Christian excellent things, to under, unfold the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And finally, sub point C, to do what? To see that the door was opened. I should, I should hold this up because if you had read the account and listened to the reading, when, pilgrim, when the pilgrim comes to the door and knocks, initially the door does not open. And that was only in order to check pilgrim again at the level of sincerity. Because didn't we already learn in Luke chapter 11, verse 9? If you ask, you shall receive. If you seek, you will what? If you knock, it shall what? Right. And so James told us the only reason it doesn't open is because you don't knock. Well, master, I knock one time. One time's not going to get it. You got to knock long enough for someone to think you mean business. If somebody come knock on my door when I'm tired and they go, bunk. I immediately assumed that was a bird or a cat or a dog. I am not getting up from my sleep for just a don't. If somebody goes, don't, 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 I might stick an ear up and hope that they got the wrong house. I'm right. I'm trying to sleep. You, you guys, if she said, oh, no, she doesn't understand. I, I have a three story home. I live on the third bottom story. I don't want to get up because somebody knocked on the wrong door. If somebody keeps knocking at my door. I'm up because they mean business. And a sinner that knocks at the door of Christ, the door of God that way, will have the door opened. And so the servant of the interpreter came to the door and wedged the door 
because he had to be discerning as to who is there and why he is there. This would be the people of God in the church, particularly at the practical level of discerning whether or not many women are serious about the things of the kingdom. It's not the front door of the building. This is the front door of the cause of the gospel. Am I making some sense? It's not my job to do anything but to find out first and foremost, listen carefully, who are you and why are you here? See what I'm getting? So the servant of the house is not swinging the door wide open because it's not his house. You quickly lose your job if you work for me and you just swung the door wide open to any Tom, Dick and Harry. So if you remember that account, what he did from the door was engage the man to ask him who he was and why he was there. And Christian, again, summarily said, I was told by evangelists, I was told by goodwill that the master of the house can show me excellent things by which I can know which way to go. And so what did not happen was the person who came to open the door did not open the door to him. Right. As I told you guys before, the church has no doors to open to sinners who need Christ. The church has no doors to open to sinners who need Christ. Only Christ can open the door. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Only God can open the door. So what happened? What the man did was turn and say to the interpreter, sir, we have somebody at the house. An interpreter came to the door, did he not? interpreter came to the door and when he affirmed uh, pilgrim's purpose for being there the text says he opened the door what why you guys are not reading see this is where narrative reading must be sensibly felt because it means something it means when christian made contact pilgrim made contact with interpreter and his words were affirmed that he's being drawn by god the door swung wide open come on in because now he's about to go to the next level of affirmation of what it means to come into a saving knowledge of christ did that make some sense all right so let me parse this just for theological verity you and I have no door to open to anybody. In fact, doors have to be open for us. If I were to talk about the, the door of proclamation, wherever I have gone to preach the gospel, I say, Lord, you open the door. You open the door and give me access to preach and proclaim and prophesy and set forth truth. And then God will have to open the door of their heart. Paul could not open the door of the heart of Lydia. Only God could open her heart. Do you guys understand that? We don't open anybody's heart. You don't open anybody's heart. You're not God. Follow this now. Lydia didn't open her own heart. God opened her heart. See, the work of opening is God's. Am I making some sense? Right. It's a beautiful thing when it happens because the, the pilgrim is going to advance in their journey and you're going to know it. You and I, if we are sincerely loving believers, if we love the people of God, if we love lost sinners, we love to see them making progression in the things of the kingdom of God. But that means God is opening doors for them. But that's a negotiation between them and God. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. I want to just talk a little bit about that then before we shut down. We got about five or 10 minutes to go. The idea was very clear to me when uh, interpreter opened the door. Again, that's John 6, 37. All that the father gives to me shall come to me. And he that comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. I will not say no to the one who has drawn them to me because the collaboration is between the triune God. You can't get to Jesus without the Father and the Father's not sending people to Jesus for whom Jesus has to say no. Did that make some sense? All right, so here's a, here's a couple, couple examples of it. Revelation chapter three, verse seven and eight. Um, obviously, this is one of two churches out of the seven churches of Asia Minor that did not receive an admonition or a rebuke or a stern warning by Christ. And this is called the Church of Philadelphia. Okay, there's seven churches in, in, in the Asia Minor text, Revelation chapter 3. 
um, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, um, Philadelphia, um, Laodicea. Uh, uh, no, the first one is Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamos, and then Thyatira, and then Sardis, then Philadelphia, and then finally what? Laodicea. Right, and so Philadelphia is number five, and Philadelphia means in the Greek city our, our brotherly love. It's the idea of the people of God having a healthy love for one another. Did that make some sense? Right, and that was characteristic of the people of God in that day. I love what Christ is about to say here, and listen to the words. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, and he that is true, and he that hath what? Right. Now, he's the one that opens doors. A key opens. Here we are in the analogy and the metaphor again, are we not? He's the king of Zion. That's, that's Jesus. He's the son of David. And he has the keys to the kingdom, does he not? He actually gave that key to Peter. And Peter opened the door by the proclamation of the gospel in Acts 2. If you guys recall, this is what I meant by open door. God opens the door and then we speak and people enter into it if God wants them saved. So that's what Peter did. And notice here it says he has the key of David. He that openeth and no man can what? And he that shuts and no man opens. Beautiful placard of the character of Christ to the church at Philadelphia because the Philadelphians were winning sinners to Jesus. And what Jesus is saying, that's not happening because of you. That's happening because of me. I'm opening doors for you. But they were suffering for Christ's sake as well. But look at the next verse. I want you to see this. After the placard is given of Christ's person and characteristic, here's what he says. Um, what, let's see here. Verse, are we at, do we skip a verse? Are you, okay. So I know your works. Behold, I have set before you what? An open door and no man can what? For you have a little strength and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Beautiful. Beautiful. Look at what he did. He commended them for three qualities and he says, I'm opening the doors for you. You will be preaching and people will be hearing the gospel and they will come into a saving knowledge of Christ. One, because you have a little strength. Do you see that? That was not an admonition. That was simply a, a very precise assessment of the state of the Philadelphians. If we use that term on a sociological level, it means they were not a big church. Did that make some sense? I want you to capture that. Why? Because every believer has been given a measure of power. Every believer has been given a measure of power. Tarry ye here until you be endued with what? From on high. Every believer has power. The gospel has power. Faith is an exhibition of power. Is that not so? Now, our power may be weak. It may be small, but it's still of a divine origin, is it not? Isn't it a beautiful thing for God to say you have a little strength? I mean, because he could say you don't have no strength at all, child. You, you jacked up. But we have a little strength, right? It's a beautiful thing. Now watch this. You have a little strength because you're a small group of believers, but you're making a significant impact. And you have what? Kept my word. It takes strength to keep God's word. Now watch this. You have a little strength and you have kept my word and you have not what? Now this here is really at the heart of the Christian faith from the beginning of time up to now and particularly in the era in which I am. I'm not going to go off on a long tangent, but denying his name is the goal of the enemy from the beginning of time to the end of time. The name is the uh, nomenclature. It is the attribution. It is the reputation. It is the influence. It is the authorial range. That's the idea of the name. You have not denied my name. What does that mean? You have not denied who I am. You have not denied what I did. You have not denied what authority I possess. You have not denied me as Jesus. You have not denied me as Jesus. You have not denied me as Lord. You have not denied me as the savior of sinners. You have not denied me as the son of the living God. You have not denied me as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You have not denied me as being Yeshua, Hashim of the Old Testament. You have not denied me as being the angel of the Lord. You have not denied me as being the judge of all the earth. You have not denied me across all of the offices which have been plainly revealed to my people as to who I am. 
Did that make some sense, you guys? All right. So the reason why I say that is because the gospel becomes offensive only when you set Jesus right in it. You can have religion forever and a day. As long as you remove Jesus from it, people cool. As soon as you make Jesus Lord of all, we got a problem. As soon as you make him the exclusive, unique son of the living God, we got a problem. When you make him the only means of redemption and atonement and salvation for sinners, you got a problem. When you make him the word made flesh dwelling among us, you got a problem. See what I'm getting at? I can go across all of his offices and tell you the subtlety of the maniacal, surreptitious nature of fallen man is they want to play like they love God, but they do not want God's son. As soon as you take Jesus serious, you can find out who the heretics are and who the devils are. If, if you go to talking about any kind of theological proposition on the planet, devils can dwell among you and they can look good. They will shine. They will make all kind of noise. They'll bring to the table all kind of theological data, historical evidences, and you'll swear they're good until you start saying Jesus is all. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is supreme. He is the son of the living God. No one comes unto the father but by him. He alone accomplished eternal redemption. Outside of Christ, you'll perish in hell. Those are fighting words for the kingdom of darkness. Did that make some sense? It's really true. So if you just want to go to a church where y'all all cool and kicking in, everybody got their own way, just leave Jesus out the conversation. Test it sometime. Test it sometime. Hang out with all kind of weird, wild, twisted religious folk. They cool. They cook good. Eat their food. Pray for them. Have a great conversation. Don't say nothing about Jesus and they will love you. The moment you make Jesus the revelation of the invisible God, the precise image of his character and nature exclusively, you got a problem. Did that make some sense? The reason why the saints died in the first century it's because they would not bow to Caesar as Lord. See what I'm getting at? Jesus loved the church at Philadelphia. He said, the door is wide open to you. One more verse, and then we'll, 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 we're going to really get into it on, on Wednesday, and then we'll come back and close out with some, some really Socratic questions on point number three on Friday. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is John. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 1. I want to talk about this a little bit because what I'm talking to you about is the role of the interpreter, right? Is, are we in agreement? The role of the interpreter is to make known to us the mysteries of the kingdom of God, to unfold to us the nature and character of the unseen kingdom. The kingdom of God is spiritual. Would you agree? That's going to be Luke chapter 17, 20. Don't go there. Um, this is what John says. Now, John is the last of the uh, first century apostles. He's the last one. He was the baby. He's the one hung out in Jesus' bosom. He learned some things that the other disciples didn't learn, but he had to wait until they were almost all gone, if not all gone, and he's the last one. Rome gets a hold of him like Rome got a hold of all of Jesus' apostles because Jesus said that's what's going to happen, right? I'm sending you in the midst of wolves. Don't think that they're not going to salivate and seek to eat you up. All of the apostles died with the exception of John as a martyr. Did you guys know that? All of the apostles died. So here's your homework between now and tomorrow. I want you to go online and look up the martyrdom of the apostles. Okay? You need to know how grace worked in their life to, took, to take common men who turned the world upside down for Christ, who were told by Jesus that they were going to meet the same fate that he did with the exception of John. Did that make some sense? You're all going to die. You're all going to die. See, if, if Jesus is not glorious, that proposition doesn't work for us. <clears throat> You're all going to die. The only person that didn't die was John. But they put him in a bunch of boiling oil, so he looked at like a wretched mess when he came out. They tortured him. He's on the Isle of Patmos, a, a, a block of rocks right off of Asia Minor Shore in the Mediterranean Sea where you put criminals. And just like our brother John Bunyan was in, pres in prison receiving this revelation that we're working through, so John the Apostle received the apocalypse. Y'all keeping up with me? 
So, so we see this theological economy that as our outer man perishes, our inward man is renewed. That even though the outer man goes down, the inner man goes up. In other words, for John, the persecution of the world became a platform for the last major apocalyptic revelation of the transcendent, glorious, sovereign Lord of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. The apocalypse, the last book of the Bible, was given to John as the last message to the church about the rule and reign and sovereignty of Christ. And we would be a mess without the apocalypse. Did you know that? And all I want to say to you is John used the language here that John Bunyan uses that we're using. John says, when I was on the Isle of Patmos, this is something that happened. This, after this, I looked and behold what? A door was open in heaven. See it? A door was open in heaven. So from chapter four on, what we have are transcendently heavenly viewpoints of God's sovereign rule over the earth. Chapters one through three, John turned to see the voice that spoke with him and the voice that spoke with him was a trumpet. Now the trumpet represents the word of God, right? But when John turned, what he saw was the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks called the menorah, which means Christ was showing John how that he was already in the church in the spirit, taking care of his bride, the candlesticks. Y'all got that? I want you to keep that in mind because this is the question we're getting ready to raise on tomorrow. What is the first thing that interpreter tells his servant to do as him and his servant brings pilgrim into the room? Light a candle. You got it? Light a candle. That means something, you guys. You know, it, it, this is not incidental. Lighting the candle is the beginning of the process of revelation of dark things that cannot be seen without the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. All right, that's where we're going to stop.